Uh, good morning, church. Will you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1? We're going to spend our time this morning uh, looking at verses 12 through 26. Uh, we will complete chapter 1 today. While you're doing that, I have to tell you, uh, I already told some of, some of those who were here earlier, but uh, yesterday around noonish, uh, I was really struggling with this all week. And for those of you who have ever um, preached, uh, narratives can be difficult at times uh, because narratives are a lot, they're very um, descriptive in nature. And so you're, you're looking at a description of events and things that occurred in a certain way. And then from that, um, it, they're easy to teach. Uh, for those of you who are gifted in, in, in teaching, you can walk through and talk about what was going on at that time. And you do a lot of research and, and you can come conclusion about how to relate to the original audience, but in preaching, it's taking it a step further, and it's saying, okay, not only did what did it mean to them, what did it mean for all time and all people, and then how do I bring that home today? And so I was struggling because I had this whole thing, what I kept seeing over and over was so practical that I was afraid I was missing out on something. And it was about how to make, how mission-minded people make mission minded decisions. That's, that's what I saw. I kept seeing it over and over. And it was very practical. It was, okay, we need to go to Scripture. We need to look at, at Scripture and how it reveals the will of God. When you're trying to determine that, and then you also consider, okay, but well, what's not there? So I need to pray for uh, spiritual direction. And then I need to make a decision and trust in God's sovereignty, that He is in control of, of all things, that He's working all things out for, for His glory. But I just, I was like, man, I, I I feel like I'm missing something. And credit to my wife, if uh, God had not uh, specifically said that man should not submit to the authority of a woman, I believe she would be a good preacher. Uh, she'd be a good teacher. For those of you who have ever um, been exposed to her teaching on the women's side, I, I think she's got a lot of good knowledge that can help. And so she helped me yesterday. I said, this is where I am, but I really feel like I'm missing it. Can you kind of help me here? Take a look and just throw out some ideas. And when she did, I was like, yes, that's what I was missing. Because what I wanted to make sure I didn't miss was how this fits within the overall purpose of Acts. And yes, there is a mission. We saw that last week, right? We saw the mission given by the king, by Jesus Christ, to his disciples. And it was to start in Jerusalem, expand to Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth, being witnesses but there was this overarching theme that Blake pointed out a few weeks ago. Despite opposition, the kingdom of God will advance. And Natalie pointed out something to me that I had missed. And I was like, that's it. That's, that's how it fits this overall theme of this gospel. Yes, there is a mission. We're going to see that play out. In the way, and all those things that I talked about, about making decisions, those all come into, they're all part of the text, they're all there. But there's something a little bit more, that took a little bit more time to consider who is being talked about, to put yourself in their shoes. And so I'm going to ask you to do that this morning as we get into the text. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples and think about what they were feeling. At this time, I hope last week was both encouraging and challenging. Encouraging in that we got to see the promise of God revealed in the mission of that global gospel movement. And we got to see that it will be fulfilled. 
There was no if there that this will happen. You will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. And we got to see that promise of the, the king who will return. The angels stood next to the disciples as they were gazing up after Jesus had ascended. They said, hey, look, that same Jesus, he will come back in the same way in which he has left. I hope it was also challenging as we considered our role in the mission that was given to the disciples and passed on to the church. That mission of going to the ends of the earth. In our passage this morning, we will see the disciples in a period of waiting. Jesus had told them, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. Wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you because that is, He will give you the power to be able to move forward with this mission. Do not go until He comes. And that's where we are in our text this morning. They're in this period of waiting. But they're actively waiting. They're, they're not just sitting there, just not doing anything, but we're going to see that they're praying, they're worshiping, they're spending time with one another. And while they actively wait, they deal with some issues that have likely caused pain in order that they may continue moving forward with the mission. Let's read our text in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And... Let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen 
to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning asking for your Holy Spirit, the power of your Spirit, to give us the ability to understand this scripture. Father, I pray that you would, um, through the words that I speak this morning, exalt your Son, Jesus Christ. That you would give us a bigger picture of, of who you are and how you are sovereign, how you're loving, and how you care for the broken. Father, I also pray that you would continue as we study this book to increasing us the sense of urgency that we must have to carry out the mission given to your church. Glorify yourself this morning and sanctify your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we look at this text this morning, one of the things we're going to see is there there is some pain that they have to deal with. And so as we move forward, I, I kind of broke it out in two major sections, but there's going to be several points in here on how they accomplished these. We need to see how, how they moved forward with the mission, even when it hurts. They're going to deal with the pain, and then they're going to move forward. Let's look at how they dealt with the pain, starting in verse 12. It says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. So what do we see here? Jesus has ascended. Prior to his ascension, he told them, hey, you need to go to Jerusalem and wait. So what do they do? We see them being obedient. They return to Jerusalem, coming down from the Mount of Olivet, that is also known as the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives was just outside the city of Jerusalem. It was about 200 feet in elevation, different, so it wasn't like this was a, a long walk. In fact, it says they were a Sabbath day's journey. I was originally thinking, I was like, well, that's a weird way to describe that. What is a Sabbath day's journey? Is that a week? I mean, are we looking at weeks here? That concept, that idea goes back to when Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. And on the Sabbath day, you, 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 you had to go worship, so you had to go to the tabernacle, but you couldn't do any work. And so what they figured out was that about 2,000 cubits, or about half a mile or three-quarters of a mile, the farthest tent was located from the tabernacle. And so that was permitted. You could travel that far on the Sabbath day. It's a Sabbath day's journey. That's how far Olivet was, the Mount of Olives was, from Jerusalem. And that's how far they traveled. So it's not a long walk. They were just outside. So they get into Jerusalem. And in verse 13, it says, When they entered the city, they went up to the upper room. This is possibly the same upper room where they received the Possibly the same upper room where they had been in hiding after Jesus' death. And when Jesus appeared to them. The upper room of a house was sort of a living area. This specific upper room was likely part of a large house, because as we'll see later on, there was about 120 people in there at one point. Luke then recorded which disciples were there. And so you, you work down the list, and 
You know, I'm not sure about the order. I do think there's some significance to the order. Anytime you see a list, especially one as lengthy as this one, you want to ask yourself, why is he listing them out in the way that he does? One thing for sure, at the very beginning, you've got the first four disciples that Jesus called. You've got two sets of brothers. You've got Peter and Andrew. You've got James and John. And probably within that list, there's also significance as, as far as the first three that are mentioned, Peter, John, and James, were part of Jesus' inner circle that he invested a, a lot of time in and allowed them to see things that the other disciples did not get to see. And then possibly just in the ranking within those three, as we see Peter listed first, we see Peter, even in our text this morning, and historically, he's always the leader of the disciples, right? He just wasn't always a really good one. But he was a leader. Right behind him, you see John listed, the beloved disciple, the one that we know from John's gospel was faster than John, than Peter. He ran faster. And then right below him, who do you see? You see James. Who was James? James was the leader of the, the church in Jerusalem. So you have some sort of significance here. After listing out all of the disciples that were there, he includes others. We see the women in verse 14. More than likely, this would be Mary Magdalene, Mary, the wife of Clopas, likely Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, and also Salome, the mother of James and John. We also see Mary, the mother of Jesus. And his brothers, Jesus' brothers, referring to his, that would be James, not the disciple James, but the author of James in the New Testament. Judas, who otherwise goes by the name of Jude, the author of Jude in the New Testament. Joses and Simeon, who you don't know much about. All these were present here in this upper room. But in context, I think Luke's purpose to including such a detailed list is to point out to his original audience, remember Theophilus, who isn't there? Let me remind you, Theophilus, of the one that is not there. Judas. Judas Iscariot. And it's here that I want to consider what this group of people were feeling, specifically those 11 remaining disciples. You see, for us, we're, we're separated in time and history. So it's a lot easier for us to objectively look at, at Judas and see him as the villain. And one of the things that I've always had to pray against was this feeling of hatred towards that man. Like, okay, we're all against him, right? Judas is the bad guy. He's the one that betrayed everybody. He's the one that delivers Jesus over to be crucified. He's the villain. That's not as easy for those men. You understand that. For three years, this is one of their closest friends. They've traveled with Jesus. Everything that they've gone through during the life and ministry of Jesus that they were a part of, Judas was there. They broke bread with him. They traveled with him. They saw the, the miracles of Jesus 
the display of his deity with him. And this guy, he, no one would have suspected this. You realize that. The fact that he was trusted as the treasurer, that he was the one carrying the money, they would never have thought that Judas would betray them and Jesus. Yet it was one of their very own that not only betrayed them, but more importantly, betrayed Christ. So this is how they're in this situation. And I realize there's, there's some time. There's, there's a gap here. We know for sure that Jesus was dead for three days and then raised. So from the time of the betrayal, there's been three days. We know that, that Jesus was on the earth for 40 days after that. So we're at 43 days now, and here we're in this period of waiting that overall took 10 days from the time that Jesus ascended and the day of Pentecost. So we know that we're somewhere within that. So let's just say we're at two months. For any of you who have ever been betrayed by a close friend, have ever been hurt by somebody within the church, or anybody that has ever experienced the loss and death of a close friend, then you will be able to identify with the disciples that two months does not just bring miraculous healing. So they're in pain. They're probably trying to figure things out. You think it was hard for them to trust anybody? You think they... They still suffer betrayal, the, the pain from a betrayal of, of a close friend. And in this case, they can't even go to him and, and, and start pursuing him and, and for repentance and re- restoration as we would today. As we would, we would probably practice church discipline, hopefully. We wouldn't just ignore this, but we would go one-on-one with our brother and say, Hey, look, this, this is a sin issue. And if your brother didn't listen to you, you would go with another who has experienced it, who has seen it, and point out to your brother in hopes of restoration, hey, this is sin. How can you not see what you've done here? This led to murder. And if that didn't work, you would go to the church. And when that finally happened, you would have nothing to do with them, but they would still be alive. They can't even do that because as Luke records, we know Judas committed suicide out of the guilt that he felt. When we combine what is recorded in Matthew's gospel with what Luke records, we have a fuller picture of what actually occurred. Turn with me, hold your place in Acts, but turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, starting in verse 3. We'll read through verses, verse 10. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed 
and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, them on whom a price had, not, had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. That's Matthew's account. Now read Acts 1.18 through 19. Now this man, speaking of Judas, this, you see this is in parentheses. This is like a thought that Luke wanted to make sure he included in his account here. Now this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Now you see two differing accounts, right? One says that Judas bought a field, the other one says that the, the chief priest bought a field. Does that mean that Scripture contradicts itself? If, if so, we, can we trust anything else it says? Let's summarize what happened here. Judas feels guilty. He goes and he says, I don't want this money. I've committed sin. This has led to murder of an innocent man. The chief priests say, oh, our, our business is done. He throws the money down at their feet and he runs out and he hangs himself or at least tries to. But the problem was apparently the rope didn't hold. And so when it snapped, he fell down and where he hung himself in that field, there were rocks, boulders, and he fell upon the rocks. And you, you get a really description. The physician comes out, right? The physician describes and his bowels. He was disemboweled. They gushed out. He didn't buy that field. What happened, though, the hypocrisy of the chief priests comes to light once again. We can't take this money into the treasury because it, it was used for murder. We're okay with the murder, but we can't do anything with the money. So what do we do with the money? Hey, let's go buy that field that he hung himself in. And so on Judas's behalf, with his money, blood money, they go and buy the field, and so that field became known as the field of blood. To us, this man is the betrayer of Jesus. To the disciples, he was also a friend and a companion. And for those of you who have ever had to experience that, betrayal by a friend, hurt by somebody in the church, losing someone very close to you, possibly even by suicide, one that takes their own life. Undoubtedly, you know that these men were affected by that. How did they deal with this hurt? Verse 14, the first thing we see is that 
They were in communion with God. Communion with God. What does it say in verse 14? They devoted themselves to prayer. Praying to God. We don't really know exactly what they were praying for, but we have some sort of indication. If you turn back to Luke, at the very end of Luke's uh, gospel, Luke chapter 24, I read part of this last week, but I intentionally left verse 53 off whenever I was reading it. If you notice, I cut it off right at the end. And that was for a reason, because I knew we were going to see that this morning. I wanted, to, I wanted you to see where they were. In Luke 24, starting in verse 50, Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, this is referring to Jesus, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. It says they had joy. In the midst of their pain, they have joy. They return to Jerusalem and they're in worship. They're devoting themselves to prayer and not just prayer in the upper room anymore, right? Because they're no longer in hiding. Now they're able to go out in public. They're going to the temple continually, worshiping, praying. In their hurt, they still had joy because of who God was and what he has promised. It's okay to feel pain. You don't have to walk around being happy all the time. But for those of you who have trusted in Christ and believe in the promises of God, you can have joy in the pain. In their hurt, they had joy because of who God was and what he had promised. So they communed with him in prayer and in praise and worship. Not only did they have communion with God, but they had communion with God's people. Communion with God's people. Luke describes them as together, with one accord. They are unified. Guys like Peter have already seen the lack of fruit that comes when you withdraw, when you isolate yourself. You remember how Peter reacted after the death of Jesus. Out of guilt, he pulled away from everybody. Peter, of all people, knows what we should do in that type of situation because he experienced it from Christ who went after him, who pursued him. We don't see them withdrawing from others out of distrust. That would be easy for them to do after a close friend has betrayed. Okay, who can I trust you? Can I trust you? Instead, they're spending time with one another, encouraging one another, working with one another, solidifying their unity that they have in Christ. After that, you see that they, they talk about their source of pain. They talk about it in verse 15. While they're dealing with everything in communion with God and with one another, there is still an elephant. I told Nelly I wasn't going to say it, but I'm too cheesy. There's an elephant in the room. <laughs> There's something that they need to talk about that hasn't been discussed yet. And so Peter, being that outspoken leader that he is, stands up among that group. And Luke records there was about 120 people here. 
And he begins that discussion. He says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. Now, I want you to notice a couple things. Do you notice the difference of tone in the way Peter's speaking now? I mean, do you remember how foolish Peter was during the, the ministry of Jesus, how everything he said, Jesus had to correct him? This is coming after the fact that Jesus has sat down with them and he's opened their minds. We read that last week. Opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Peter reflecting on the scriptures that he, not only did he know, but now he understands how they've been fulfilled, says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. Second thing I want you to notice there is that word had. This is something that had to be done. We saw this in John's gospel on the night of Jesus' betrayal. Jesus was in complete control. When you think about it, you go back to that upper room where they, where they were partaking the Lord's Supper. Jesus reveals to Judas that he knows what he's going to do. He even tells him, go do it. Then when he's in the garden and they come to arrest him, what does Peter do? Pulls out his little dagger. And look, he didn't try to slice off the ear. He ended up slicing off the ear, but no doubt he was going for the jugular. He was trying to defend his Christ. And Jesus says, Peter, put that, put that down. Because he was in control. This had to be done. The scripture had to be fulfilled. The other thing that I want you to notice here, scripture is trustworthy. You can trust what scripture says. You see God work in his way, not according to man's way, to fulfill scripture. So the things that are said, the, th the promises that are made to the church of God, you can trust them. Peter, referring to Old Testament prophecy, says that Judas's betrayal was the fulfillment. That Old Testament prophecy, he also notes, was inspired by the Holy Spirit, spoken by the mouth of David. That's how we get all of this. It's divinely inspired. It's God-breathed. This is His Word, recorded, by fallible man. Not only is Scripture trustworthy, but it's infallible because it's God's Word. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, David recorded prophecies that would be ultimately fulfilled in the New Testament age. And Judas had to betray Jesus and become a guide to bring Jesus under arrest. So in verse 17 of Acts 1, we see that under the sovereignty of God, Peter says Judas was numbered among them, that he was given his share in the ministry. It had to happen that way. He was part of the gang, but it was ultimately to serve as the means through which Jesus would be delivered to be crucified. The next thing they do to deal with the pain is they consult Scripture. 
Scripture had to be fulfilled. And so as part of dealing with the pain, they looked to Scripture for an explanation. Scripture like Psalm 41.9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Scripture like Psalm 55.12-14, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Specifically in our text, Peter quotes Psalm sixty-nine, twenty-five, and verse 20. He says, for it is written, Peter speaking, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. This is referring to those who have rejected God. Despite seeing his glory on display, they've turned away from him. In fact, they go after the the people of God. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. He also quotes Psalm 109.8, let another take his office. Peter takes these Old Testament psalms and shows his brothers and sisters how they are relevant to the situation that they find themselves in. As part of dealing with their pain, in search of an explanation, they search the scripture for the will of God that is revealed. What do we know God has revealed? The only way for us to know is to go search his word for that. Peter also knew that they must select another qualified person to replace Judas as a member of the twelve. Jesus had spoken this directly to Peter, in fact, in Matthew chapter 19. Starting in verse 27, then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Peter reminded the group that another must take the office of Judas. At this point in verses 11 through 12, uh, 20, we've seen how the disciples dealt with their pain. They had communion with God. They had communion with God's people. They talked about their source of pain and they consulted scripture for the revealed will of God. And whether you're able to identify with the grief in losing someone close, that feeling of betrayal from a close friend, or you've been hurt by the church, I want to encourage you. Commune with God. Pour out your soul to your good Father. He has displayed to you His tremendous love in giving of His Son so that He may adopt you into His family. You can go to Him. Commune with God's people as difficult as that may be because I know we're a mess. It's even harder if you're one who's been hurt by the church. I encourage you not to withdraw, not to isolate yourself. We were, 
We were created for community. We were created in God's image, who, who is a community of himself, the, the Trinity, the three persons of the, commu- of, of, of the Godhead. Spend time with people who are able to love you because they've been loved. Spend time with people who are merciful because they've received mercy. Spend time with people who can speak truth and bring light into your darkness. While you're with God's people, make sure you talk about your source of pain. Don't act like it doesn't exist. It's okay. It's okay for it to hurt. And consult Scripture for the revealed will of God, because while some things are concealed, some things are not explicitly stated in Scripture. God's Word is sufficient. For everything we need for salvation and to glorify Him, to make Him known, it's there. So search it. Now that we saw how they dealt with their pain, let's see how they moved forward, even when it hurt. Acts 1, verses 21 through 23, we'll see that they not only searched Scripture, but that they trusted Scripture. Peter, still speaking here, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. Trusting that Scripture was authoritative in the need to replace Judas, Peter begins to move forward in action and in obedience. He doesn't just sit content with the knowledge of what Scripture has revealed about the will of God. But he takes action to move forward. And so he gives the qualifications that should be considered because not just anybody is going to be an apostle. The first qualification is that they must have been a witness to Jesus' earthly ministry. Second qualification, they need to be a witness to Jesus' resurrection. There's a third qualification. We'll see that in a little bit. But he puts those two forward first. And in verse 23, we see that the response of the group is that they are following Peter's leading in obedience. They're all moving forward together. The brothers put forward only two men that would meet those qualifications. Joseph and Matthias, neither of whom we know much about. They trust Scripture as they move forward, and then they pray for wisdom and discernment and direction in verse 24 and 25. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. After trusting in the scripture that reveals the will of God, the group that would make up the early church are faced with a difficult decision because that decision is not clearly revealed. We're supposed to replace Judas. Who do we replace him with? We had uh, we we kicked off our, our college group. It's college career young professionals. 
we basically just open it up to the whole church. Um, <laughs> but everybody, we had, we, we had a good group um, this week, and one of the questions that somebody brought up, just for a fun conversation piece, was if you had three wishes, what would you wish for? And I'm, I'm hearing what people are saying. And I'm like, man, how do I answer that type of question? So my personality comes out. Nally immediately said he can take a fun game and make it boring really quickly. <laughs> I'm like, I need a spreadsheet because I need to analyze all the different options and figure out which one if I only have three. And you can't wish for th- more wishes, by the way. Um, so I started thinking through that. Decisions in life are hard. Because there's lots of options. I think about when I go to the Coke machine. I don't drink Coke much, but when I go to Mr. Gaddy's, they got that awesome Coke machine that you can pick all these different flavors and combine them, and it, it's so fun. But that's a hard decision if I, if I can only do one. There's no going back, right? In this case, it's not like you can pick one. Let's pick Matthias. Oh, he didn't work out. Let's pick another one. That has to be the right guy. When we make decisions, what do I study in school? Where do I move? Do I go after a career? Do I stay plugged into a local church body and the ministry that's going on there? Am I trying to reach this neighborhood and I feel like this is where I'm supposed to be despite whatever job it is that I'm doing? What do I do with my kids? You're not going to get specific instruction on whether or not you should let your son play football. You're not going to receive specific instruction on what to eat for lunch tomorrow. God's will is revealed here, though. And it is sufficient to give you what he has purposed for you to know. And then we need to pray. Because there is one who knows. You notice the language that they used when they prayed. Lord, you know. We don't know, but you do. Please give us, show us who it is that we should choose. Because who chose them? Notice they didn't say, tell us who, who, who we should choose. Show us who you have chosen. And then we see that they, they cast lots. By the way, that third qualification, chosen by God. To be an apostle, you had to have those three. So after prayer, they move forward with the mission in 126. They cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, I live in Louisiana. Specifically, I live in Lake Charles, or Sulphur, right next to Lake Charles, where all these casinos are. So everybody from Texas comes in. And so when I think of casting lots, I'm thinking of, let's roll the dice. Let's flip a coin. Let's pull that machine and see what happens. It's kind of what they did. This was the... Old Testament way of determining the will of God. We saw that in Jonah. We, our, our, our students, our youth group, started going through Jonah this week. And one of the things in the overview was when, G, when Jonah flees from the presence of God, 
God says, go up. He goes down. He did everything the wrong way. He gets on this ship, and then God brings a storm. And they're trying to figure out, everybody on the ship, why is this storm here? What is God doing? So they cast lots. And the lot fell on Jonah. He says, it's my fault, guys. Just throw me in the water. It'll stop. Just throw me in. I'd rather die. Throw me in. They cast lots to help determine the will of God. This right here is the last time this is recorded in Scripture, in the New Testament age. Because in the very next chapter, in chapter 2, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes. See, today we don't, we don't pray to God and then flip a coin for what we should do. Because we've been given the Holy Spirit. We have a good counselor who helps, helps us and gives us wisdom to make wise decisions, spirit-led decisions. How many of us make decisions not spirit-led? This is, this is one of those things where, man... Even the small decisions sometimes. I, there was a, we had a visitor here last week who, who was able to tell me a little bit about his story. And one of the things he said was, when I look back now, now I have a better understanding of everything that was going on back then. You see, those small decisions that you make. Buy a house, rent a house. Where am I going to buy? Where am I going to rent? What school am I going to go to? All of those decisions are going somewhere. There is a plan. There is a purpose. And hopefully, you're making those decisions with the mission in mind. Because that's what's going on here. These guys aren't just replacing it because, oh, we got to have somebody else to fill that 12th position. They know that we need somebody else because we've been given a mission. And we need that 12th person to carry this mission out. Mission-minded people... Make mission-minded decisions. We've got the Holy Spirit now, so we don't have to flip a coin. We search Scripture. We trust Scripture. We pray for wisdom and direction, asking the Holy Spirit to lead us. And then we move forward. And in this case, we have to move forward with the mission, even when it hurts. Understand that this was a tough situation for the disciples. In their grief, they moved forward by trusting Scripture. Asking God for wisdom and direction. And they moved forward with the mission in mind. Church, despite opposition, the kingdom of God will advance. We've been given a mission to reach our neighborhoods, our city, our state, our country, to the end of the earth. We can rest assured that we're going to have opposition. We will feel pain. But like the disciples, we can have joy in the midst of that pain. And we can move forward to carry out the mission that we've been given. With the urgency of the mission in mind, we must deal with the pain and move forward. Know that you're not alone. I want you to understand this. 
I don't want you to feel like, man, I just got to ignore all this stuff. And I've just got to keep pressing on. And I'm not saying know that you're not alone because there are others around you, because that's important too. But know that you're not alone because we have a king who is a man of sorrows. We have a king who is acquainted with grief. He has borne our grief. He has taken it upon his shoulders. His mercies are new every morning. What does that mean? That today his mercy is sufficient for you and tomorrow he never runs out. It'll be sufficient for you. His grace is sufficient. As we saw in John's gospel and from his fullness we have seen him and we have received what? Grace upon grace. Do you remember that from John's gospel? I can start on that end of the room and I'll work on my way down but we got a camera that kind of focuses right here. But grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, upon grace. It's never ending. It's ever flowing. It's like that trash can, right? You push it down. How do you know that something's full whenever stuff starts flowing out of it? We have seen his fullness, and he is full of grace upon grace. Christ is exalted here. We get to talk a lot about the Holy Spirit, which is good. We need that. We need that to add to our doctrine and not just focus on the Father and not just focus on Christ. But we also have to move forward with the understanding of what Christ has accomplished and what he has given us as a task to do. So commune with God. Commune with God's people. Be open to talk about your pain. Search and trust the scripture, pray for wisdom and direction, and move forward with the mission in mind for his glory so that he would be made known in our neighborhoods and to the end of the earth. Let's pray. Father, you are good. You are good. Help us to believe that. Help us to see that. Father, for any that are here this morning who maybe they're in pain today, I pray that you would comfort them. That you would reveal who you are and what you've done. Give them the comfort to know that they can go to you because you are good. Father, I pray that, that you would prepare those who aren't in pain this morning, for those who have not faced opposition. Of that, Father, would you, would you instill in us this belief and trust in your promises? And when you give us a conviction, an urgency to be fellow participants in the on this earth, not just revitalization in communities, not just social justice. Important, Father, know that you are doing 
You're saving souls. Father, would you, would you prevent us from getting distracted from our mission? Would you help us to have joy and consider it pure trials when we face, consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds? Would you provide us with community of people who can speak truth to who have the supernatural power to love like you've loved. Would you give us an exalted view of your son, Jesus Christ, who has been acquainted with grief, who is able to identify with our situation, but who has conquered God, I pray for our church as we continue in this study and look back at our heritage and the beginning days of this movement that we are now benefiters from. I pray that you would use us. I pray that we would not put ourselves above your son, Jesus, but that we would submit ourselves to his authority. Will you give us the desire to carry that gospel message, the good news of Jesus that we have received? Because there were men before us, empowered by the Holy Spirit, who gave their life to see this mission accomplished, would you create that in us? The, the willingness to lay down our lives, whatever the cost. And Father, we look forward to the day when your son returns and we get to see him face to face. But until then, will we be faithful? to the mission we've been given, your mission. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.